Okay, so the last couple of weeks, I've had quite a few opportunities to worry and to stress over, I just got a new job, like I have another job aside from this, and this is, um, you know, it's difficult. I've had a lot of opportunities to, to worry and stress out and to be concerned about money and marriage, and I can say with certainty that what gets me through life is an awareness of the fact that God is with me, right? Anybody relate to that? You know, like just the, just the awareness that God is with you does so much for your life. I think about how different life seemed before this realization that Jesus is God with us, right? It just when you didn't know that, you know. In biblical times, they had similar issues and concerns as we do now. They had family difficulties. They had marriage problems. They had problems at work. They had fears and worries and doubts. They were disillusioned with politics big time at the time Matthew was writing. They were disenchanted with what the world had to offer, materialism, money, pleasures. It's not all that different then as it is now. There was a tangible sense at the time that Matthew was writing of anticipation, that people were expecting deliverance from everything that was going on. They were looking around and they're like, man, we need something, right? And you could say that's kind of how it is today. Matthew writes to an audience that needed hope. And they had witnessed some strange things, these people here. You know, just before Matthew wrote this, 20 years before in this time, they had witnessed a man that healed people. He set people free from bondage. He performed miracles. He taught people wonderful truths. He taught people how to live, uh, how to love, how to treat others. He, He taught people to treat others as they wanted to be treated. He taught people to turn their cheek and pray for their enemies. He promised of a kingdom to come, a kingdom of hope and peace and love and righteousness, freedom from corruption and pain and sin. Then his life culminated in a brutal death on a cross. And on the third day after that, he rose out of the grave and he appeared to his followers. These are the things that Matthew's audience had witnessed in their lifetime. And so what Matthew's audience wants to know is, is this guy real? Like, is this real? What, what has happened here? This kingdom that he promises that is to come, is that a real thing? And I think that's pretty legitimate. We want to know the same thing too. And that's just what Matthew seeks to prove in these 28 chapters. Now, let's just go through and we're going to look just for a few moments at these Eight points in the outline. Don't let this scare you. Normally when a pastor's got an outline like this, you think, oh my gosh, is he even reading the Puritans again? The Puritans have like a 200-part outline and you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to take forever. But we'll get through these eight pretty quickly. So first of all, let's talk about who. Now, it's written by a guy named Matthew. His Jewish name was Levi. And sometimes that's confusing in the Bible. You say, well, was his name Saul or was it Paul? Or was it Levi or was it Matthew? Typically what happened was when people became Christians, their, their name changed. And you say, well, I know that my name changed. It used to be, hey, you, <laughs> or get away, or oh, no. You know, that's, that's just being honest, you know. And God will change your name, won't he? Now, so there's no internal evidence. That's what scholars look for in the Bible. They, in a Bible book, they say is there internal evidence. Now, what I mean is, like in the book of Titus, it said, this is by the Apostle Paul, written to Titus, right? Nowhere in Matthew does it say this is written by Matthew, but the evidence of all the early church fathers say that this was written by Matthew. The earliest manuscript evidence, uh, which are fragments and pieces of copies of the, you know, the original copies of the Bible, ancient copies, um, all of those Uh, were titled the Gospel of Matthew. Now, by the way, the title, the Gospel of Matthew, was added by the church later. Matthew, when he wrote this, he didn't write, this is the Gospel of Matthew. So all this early manuscript evidence uh, shows, and early church fathers unanimously, that this is written by Matthew. I say that because if you watch History Channel and Discovery Channel and, and things like this, there's a line of scholarship called liberal theology. And primarily on channels like Discovery Channel and History Channel, they have a lot of shows that are like Mysteries of the Bible or The Secrets of Jesus or Jesus Had a Wife That Nobody Knows About. And they do that stuff. And they, what they do is they challenge everything that conservative scholars have always believed. They'll say, you know, well, Matthew didn't write it. It was written in the 300s. You know, I've heard that before. I, I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard, well, Matthew and the Gospels were written in the 300s or 400s. 
Well, that's easily refuted by reading Irenaeus, who wrote in the 100s that it was written by Matthew. So I just say that to prepare you, because as you go in the world and, and you want to study the Bible, History Channel and Discovery Channel aren't the best sources for studying the Bible. They're television shows that make a lot of money off of like putting scandalous ideas in people's minds, and, and that gets a rise out of people. And I just say that for that uh, purpose. So all the evidence points that Matthew wrote this. Now, the backgrounds of the four gospel writers are interesting to compare. Uh, you know there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Now, Mark, he was likely this young man that hung around with the disciples. And um, there's, a, there's a comment in the gospel of Mark that says that a young man fled out of the garden naked. <laughs> and people think that he put himself in there, like he wrote, him in, he wrote himself in in the gospel of Mark. He was talking about he's this young kid that, that hung around um, with the disciples. It's interesting to think about Mark's life. Um, one time he defected completely in ministry. You guys remember that? In the book of Acts, Mark had been, you know, serving the Lord, following along, and he kind of punked out, you know. He was going to go in, uh, into some missionary situation that was going to likely be difficult, and he fled and he took off. And uh, it's interesting to read, you know, at the end of Paul's life, Paul writes about Mark, and he says, bring Mark to me. He's useful to me, I, you know. And what that tells us is even this guy, Mark, defected at a certain point. He kind of, you know, he kind of punked out on God, you know, but he was restored and brought back in. And I say that just because that, you know, just points to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and his love for people. And that's Mark. Now, Luke, Luke was a brilliant, well-educated physician. He was a meticulous historian. He was highly skilled in Greek. He wrote his gospel after interviewing many eyewitnesses. So when you read the gospel of Luke, it's eyewitness reports. Then he wrote Acts, which is the sequel to Luke. And the book of Acts um, has a lot of Luke's firsthand ministry experience in it. So we're just contrasting the different authors here. Now, John, I love John. And when you read in the Gospel of John, remember how he refers to himself? What does he call himself? The disciple Jesus loved, right? He's writing his letter. He's like, oh, and then John, the disciple Jesus loved. Yeah, that was me. I used to just hang with Jesus. He loved me. You know, that's, that's awesome, man. I mean, isn't it good to know that Jesus loves you? Isn't that good? Oh, my gosh. Now, John wrote his gospel 40 to 50 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he'd had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke when he wrote his. And he had all this time to process and think about and reflect on these truths and these miracles he'd seen Jesus do and the things he taught. And that brings us to Matthew. Now, Matthew, unlike, and by the way, John was a fisherman. Um, Matthew, unlike the other authors... Well, his background was, uh, to put it mildly, not well respected, right? Um, you ever, maybe some of you are too young to remember this, but you know how sometimes you'll be like watching a TV show or something and all of a sudden you'll hear the record needle scratch and like it goes, and everybody goes, like that? That's what would happen when somebody would say, Matthew is a disciple? Matthew? Be like, you guys don't know what a record is, but she's like, what's a record? Well, <laughs> it's like, uh, you might actually know, they're actually coming back in. People are DJs these days. Okay. So Matthew would be like, you know, you wouldn't believe it when you heard the, the history of Matthew. He's following Jesus. He's doing something godly. Why? Because Matthew was a tax collector, right? And his previous life before Christ. Now, it's not like you think a tax collector today. Like, don't go into H&R Block and go, oh, tax collector. You know what I mean? That's not, it's not the same thing. In this day and age, it was an unscrupulous profession. Here's how it worked. I'll just give you a, I'll just give you a brief illustration. Rome collected taxes off of everybody, hardcore taxes. And when they would go into areas where these Jews were living, they'd just take everything over. The Romans would now impose taxes on the Jews. And the Jews were like, no way, we're not having that. Um, they were very nationalistic, proud people. Rome's not going to collect taxes off us. So here's how Rome would do it. They would get a Jew, a fellow Jew, to start collecting taxes off of his brothers and sisters, right? Now, how Rome would do it is they would say, okay, let's just use an example. Okay, Mason City. You want to be a tax collector? Rome would say, here's how much I want from Mason City. If you're going to be the tax collector, you can make as much as you want on top of that. Just give us this much. So it opened the door to some completely unscrupulous, you know, 
uh, unethical practices, right? So Levi, Matthew, he, he was likely ripping people off, right? Here's what one commentator says. If we picture a low-ranking mobster fleecing honest, hardworking citizens for a local cartel, we probably wouldn't be far from the truth in describing Matthew, right? So that's the kind of guy you got to think here. You say, wait a minute, this dude wrote a book in the Bible? I mean, we're talking about God's word here, and the author was like a mobster before he became a Christian? Yeah. Now, one positive is his line of work would have, he would have been a meticulous record keeper and bookkeeper. And so it's not that he was, you know, ignorant. He would have been, you know, had a lot of uh, skill that would have helped in recording the gospel. Now, tax collectors also were banned from the synagogue, right? That's the, the Jewish place of worship. Tax collectors, let's, let's put it this way. To say yes to tax collecting, Matthew would have had to say no to worship, Right? Now, he's probably not the first person that said no to God to go do something worldly, right? That said no to worship because he'd rather make money. Matthew would have been an absolute disgrace to his parents. His parents would have been, you know, at the, at the party and, you know, they would have come up and his parents' friends would have come and said, hey, you know, how's Matthew doing? And they would have been like, oh, he's a tax collector, right? The Jews classed him with murderers in that day. If you've read through the Bible, you hear tax collectors, prostitutes, murderers. They're always put in the same category together. Now, isn't that kind of interesting, though, that we see God's choice of Matthew to be this author? Don't you see the grace of God in that? That's amazing. Not only did God save him, God used Matthew to write the most highly read book of all time. I mean, the Bible is the most highly read book of all time, but even the Gospel of Matthew, so many people start in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, it's the, if you really think about that, this book stands for all eternity, and it's written by an ex-mobster, an unscrupulous person, a person that at one point of their life had said no to God altogether, but he was restored, and then he was brought back in, and God used him for something tremendous. And there's application in that for you today, you know? If you think about that, I look at my own life, I look at the things I did, I look at how I said no to God, but yet he saved me, and he wants to save you. He wants to do things in your life. It doesn't, you're not disqualified from God doing something good in your life, right? He wants to give grace to you. And so maybe you struggle with that. But Matthew should be, you know, every time we get into this book week after week, I want you to remind yourself of that. Like, look how God used this guy that used to be a thug. And now look at him. His name means the gift of Yahweh. Levi was his Jewish name. Likely changed to Matthew when he became Jesus' disciple. He was likely very wealthy. He had no doubt heard of Jesus preaching around the area of Galilee. One day Jesus was making his way through Matthew's area. Jesus comes up to his tax booth and he looks at him and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and he leaves everything behind him and he goes and he follows Jesus. That one must have been a weird day at the office, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Here you are, you're doing the taxes, you got your green you know, visor on and like your tax guy hat and everything and you're crunching numbers and you got your old cow. And you know, I don't think they had any of that stuff. <laughs> but, uh, and then here comes this guy and he just comes up to your cubicle and he's like, follow me. I'm like, okay, man, <laughs> I'm out, you know? Uh, you know? And that's about how it was. You know, and no doubt he'd heard Jesus preaching. Matthew sat at a really popular tax spot at the top of the Decapolis there. It was a big tax booth, um, big area for a lot of people traveling through. But it's abrupt. And he got up and he left everything to follow Jesus. Yeah, what did he see in Jesus to do something like that? You ever, you ever done something like that? You ever thought about that? Leaving something, you know, it's like, it's lucrative. There's a lot of money in this. But there's something that's more important than money, isn't there? Right? And he gets up and he says, you know what? To heck with this tax booth stuff, man. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, that brings us to the second point, what? So that's the who, and now we'll go to the what. What is Matthew? Well, it's a gospel, okay? And so it's a narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, why are there four gospels? A lot of people ask this. And... The simple answer is there's four perspectives. Some of the details differ as they should when you have four different people giving their account of something. 
But they all present the facts of life and ministry of Jesus Christ from their unique perspectives. Now, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Has anybody ever heard that? Synoptic Gospels? The word simply means synoptic Gospels. It means seeing together. So you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're all written roughly at the same time period. When you read them all next to each other, you're seeing together the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, there are critics today that have a hard time with the variations between the Gospels. Has anybody heard any of this kind of stuff? They'll say, I don't know about that Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't even agree uh, with each other and, and stuff like that. And their details are different. And what the critics think is a stumbling block is actually proof of their authenticity, right? Let's pretend that I catch you, um, you know, and your friends taking apple pies off the window and going and like the little rascals. You remember that? <laughs> I don't know where these pictures come from in my mind while they do this stuff. But, but say that I take your friends, you know, you and your friends, and you're in trouble. And I know you took the pie off the windowsill. And I said, all four of you down. And I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out who did it. Now, what if you guys all said the exact same thing? I went to the clubhouse at 2 p.m. And then I was at, and then you all said the same thing. I'd be like, there's something fishy here. They're corroborating, Right. The fact that the gospel writers say different things proves that it's authentic. I mean, it actually leans more to the, to the argument that they're authentic, right? Now, another thing is, too, is say that I asked four people about you. Would they all say the same thing? Say if I asked your mom, if I asked your uncle, if I asked your best friend from high school. And say if I asked four people about you, would you get the same story from each one? I mean, no way, right? You know, some people would be like, no, no, that guy, you know. And then, but then your mom would be like, oh, he's an angel. And then, you know what I mean? So, so you get the idea why there needs to be four and why God has blessed us with four so we can get this total picture of Jesus. And they all present him a little differently. And we'll talk about that more. When and where? Um, there's a range that you'll find out there anywhere from 50 AD to 75 AD within conservative scholarship, Okay. Uh, like I say, the liberal camp um, will say 300, 400, you know, somewhere in there. But 50 to 75 AD, um, you know, the conservative world looks at that. Now, here's, here's a way that you can um, kind of get some sort of indicator on the date. In the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about the temple in Jerusalem still standing, right? And Jesus, you guys remember this, where Jesus comes out one day with his disciples. He goes, you see this temple, not even a brick will be standing upon another brick. This thing will be destroyed. Well, when was it destroyed? 70, 70 AD. If it's still standing when Matthew's writing, what does that tell us? Probably before 70 AD, right? Most likely. Dating ancient texts is difficult. So I'll tell you as a pastor, I don't even get tripped up mostly with that stuff. I read uh, 10 scholars that are conservative, and if they're in a range, I just say, that's cool. You know, I don't get bogged down with that sort of stuff. Now, when and where, so here's the where part. It's written mostly, most of the action takes place in this area called Galilee. Now, Galileans, it was a mixed population. Jesus was a Galilean, right? Now, this area was a mixed population. It was north of Judea, when you look on a Bible map. Now, Judea was more the more traditional Jews were. And so they looked at the Jews in the area of Galilee as kind of like their country cousins, in a sense. They didn't have as much respect for them. They weren't as orthodox. And Galileans, I mean, there was a prejudice from the Judean Jews against the Galilean Jews, okay? Now, when you're from Galilee and grew up around there as Jesus did, you'd have an accent. You talked differently. And so... The reason I say this is because when you read through the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, you see that the Jewish establishment really had a hard time with Jesus, right? And his claim to be a prophet, and then his claim to be the Messiah. And so not only was that a radical claim, but more so when you heard it coming from the dialect of a Galilean. It was like, no way, you know? And so the Jewish establishment had a problem with Jesus, and his geographic you know, upbringing even added more to that, right? Remember when Peter, remember when Peter's trying to hide out after the, you know, at the time of crucifixion, they say, no, you're a Galilean, I can tell by your accent. Well, the same thing would have been true with Jesus, right? So... <clears throat> Now, that kind of sheds some light on why Jesus was treated the way that he was. He's claiming to be a prophet, and he's claiming to be the Messiah, and so they're even extra skeptical, all right, about him. Now, let's go on to why. 
the purpose and the theme of Matthew. Now, I'm going to have you flip around through your Bible quite a bit during this section. And if you want to highlight some things in your Bible, this will be kind of a good Old Testament um, history a little bit. And uh, this should be a lot of fun. Okay. The purpose of Matthew. So gospel writers, they didn't just sit down and say, you know, I'm going to write about Jesus. Uh, They had more of a direction than that. One scholar says, every writer was confronted with a definite need that formed a definite purpose for his gospel, and he sat down and he selected his materials under the guidance of Holy Spirit with that objective in mind. That's what Henry Thiessen says in his New Testament survey. So he had a directed purpose. All of them didn't just say, oh, I'm just going to write about Jesus. It, it was, there was an intention. I'm going to present Jesus in this sort of way to this sort of audience for this reason, right? So what is Matthew's purpose? What need was he confronted with? Well, you need a little bit of Old Testament history here. So turn all the way back in your Bible, all the way to Genesis chapter 3. All the way to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and I want to show you particularly verse 15. Now, and this is going to wrap around to, you know, explaining what Matthew's purpose is here, okay? Genesis three fifteen. So you're back in the Garden of Eden at this point. God had created Adam and Eve. They were tempted by the devil. They sinned. They fell. God promised then, after that, that a Savior would come and destroy the devil one day. This Savior would be the offspring of Eve, and he shall bruise the serpent's head. In other words, he'll give the serpent a death blow. In other words, what God said all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is that, yeah, you've fallen into sin, the devil you know, got over on you, but one day somebody's going to come and he's going to deliver the death blow to the devil. Right Now, read Genesis 3, just from verse 14 even, it says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, this is after they'd sinned and now he's dishing out like the curses to him. Everybody remembers this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, that's tricked Eve, right? You are cursed more than all the cattle and of every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his uh, heel. Now notice, is, is there a capital on one of those words of seed in there? Okay. What's that? Okay. Now the reason being is the translators of the New King James and other translations of the Bible, they knew that this was a prophecy regarding the Savior, right? And so uh, Martin Luther called this the Proto-Evangelion. The, the first time the gospel is preached in the Bible is right there, okay? Um, one day, God is saying to Satan, the seed of the woman, capital S, is going to come and he's going to bruise your head. Now, that's the death blow. And then, it says, and then he says to the enemy, he says to the servant, he says, but you shall bruise his heel. And, you know, it's widely believed that's referring to the cross. The enemy will seem like he's having his day at the cross, But ultimately, Jesus will triumph over death, and that'll be the death blow to the enemy. So now, turn over. That's the first time that God promised that a Savior would come. That's the first time in the Bible, right there. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 12. So God has so far promised that a Savior will come in Genesis 3. Now, turn to Genesis 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. So now God is going to promise this guy, Abraham, that the Messiah will come from his family. See, in Genesis 3, he says, I'm going to bring a Savior. Well, now in Genesis 12, here's how I'm going to bring that Savior. I'm going to bring him through a family uh, that's head is this guy named Abraham. Now, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You should be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And listen, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? Now, again, God is promising a Savior. He's saying to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to you know, multiply you, I'm going to give you land, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you, okay? So he's getting at 
the Messiah is going to come through Abraham's line. Now turn to Genesis chapter 22. Oh, I love flipping through the Bible. You guys love this? I don't know. You can outline these, highlight these verses if you want. I mean, it's a good, uh, good little Bible study. These are promises throughout the Old Testament that God was making that the Messiah would come. Prophecies that were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. You say, I'm into prophecy. These are prophecies right here. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. He's talking about Abraham. Or he's talking to Abraham again. Look what it says. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 26. Keep on flipping. Here we go. Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's reiterating this promise over and over again to Abraham. Okay? Uh, Genesis 28, verse 14. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. This is Genesis 28, 14. All your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just driving home the point that God promised this Abraham that the whole planet is going to be blessed in his seed. Now, Genesis 49. We're going to another prophecy here. So far, we've seen the prophecy in the Garden of Eden that the Savior will come. He'll destroy the enemy. Then, to bring that Savior into the world, he's going to have to bring him in through Abraham. And now, here's another prophecy. The Messiah that will come, the king that will come, will be of the tribe of Judah. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them's name was Judah, Judah grew up to be the head of a tribe in Israel, the tribe of Judah. Now, the Messiah will be of the lineage and the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, here, listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Is Shiloh capitalized in your Bible? Okay. The reason is, is because the translators understood that that's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. In fact, the name Shiloh, do a word study on it and find out what it means in the Hebrew. It's pretty cool. But what God is saying here is the scepter, the, the, you know, it's a symbol of the king. He's got his scepter. He's ruling uh, with this... Uh, it's like a rod, kind of. It'll never depart from the tribe of Judah. It'll be an eternal kingship through Judah. The, in other words, he's saying the prophet, you know, the, or the Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Micah 5.2. Turn to Micah 5.2. Now, if you don't know where Micah 5.2 is, you're probably not the only one. If you do and the person next to you doesn't, you could show them where Micah is or you could look at the uh, table of contents. It's in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This does kind of illustrate, though, why it's nice to have a paper Bible, right? I mean, it's cool to have them on the phones and stuff, too, but this, this illustrates why I like to have a paper Bible because, I, have, I mean, as you can see, you know, I got all this stuff highlighted and all these different notes drawn everywhere, and, you know, it helps me to kind of know where I'm at. <clears throat> Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to this prophecy. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Right? Micah 5.2. That's the prophecy. Um, that's actually a couple of prophecies in there that the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. And also that he will come from the tribe of Judah. Okay? Now, skip ahead about a thousand years, like a time machine. Do -do 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 time machine. <laughs> it's like Superbook. <laughs> there they go, that little thing, the little robot. <laughs> oh boy. 
So you skip ahead about a thousand years and go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your fingers are getting a workout today. Boy, you're like, I don't even know. I didn't bring my thimble. I didn't bring, you know, you get that little um, stuff like that's like rosin that you dip your finger in for flipping pages. You get the oil on there. You know what I mean? You need that. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, eventually God, you know, later on, raises up a tribe, or I'm sorry, raises up a king over the Jews, and his name is David. You're familiar with him from the David and Goliath story. Now, God tells David that he will establish his throne forever, that someone of David's legal lineage will sit on his throne forever. Okay? 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 12. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, whom, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God promising this King David that it's going to be set up forever. His kingdom is going to be set up everlasting. There's always going to be somebody um, forever is going to come a king, you know, on the throne of David. Now, you, if this is an aside for you Bible nerds here. You say, well, did that apply to Solomon? Yes. Prophetic verses in the Bible have near and, and far fulfillments. So there was a fulfillment a lot of times that happened within David's lifetime, but it also pointed ahead towards a fulfillment in Christ. Um, I'll point out what I'm talking about. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So far, God has promised in the Garden of Eden that the Messiah would come. He promised to Abraham that it was going to come through him. And then he also said that it was going to be that the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah. Now, Isaiah 9-7. By the way, when we get into the genealogy next week and you were here this week, this is all going to make perfect sense to you and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we did this because... You know, people have a hard time with the genealogies in the Bible. This guy begat this guy, begat this guy. But I'm giving you right now the whole framework for the whole thing. So when we go through it, you're going to go like, oh, no kidding, right? All right. So far, God's promised in the Garden of Eden there'll be a Messiah. He's going to be to Abraham, right? What was next? Judah promised David that he's going to be a king on his throne forever. Now, Isaiah 9-7 reiterates that. Look at what it says. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of who? And over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with just, judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Continued prophecy that the Messiah will come from the house of David, from the seed of David. So, not only was that fulfilled in Solomon, the near fulfillment, but Isaiah 9-7 proves that it's also a far fulfillment prophecy as well. And if you don't know what I meant just there, that's okay, you will. Now, we're talking about Matthew's purpose in writing here. And I've given you this background of all these prophecies that God's been through the whole Bible saying that one is going to come. He's going to destroy the work of the enemy. And he's going to bring in this marvelous kingdom, this kingdom of peace and all these different things. And so I've given you this background. Here's some more prophecies in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn to these. And you're like, thank the Lord, I have a, I have a paper cut and I can't do it. Let me just read these to you. These are, and there are hundreds, by the way, okay? Listen to this, what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, talking about the Messiah. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall, be, shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 35, 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 9, 6. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, remember what I said about the Jews being heavily oppressed by Rome and just being like, no way. So they heard that the Messiah was going to come, and the government was going to be on his shoulders. So imagine how much they're anticipating that, Right? Sometimes through this whole like last election season, maybe you've been feeling that same way. You're like, I can't wait for the day when the government is resting on Jesus' shoulders, right? You know, and uh, check out the next one here. Uh, Psalm 109.4, he'll pray for his enemies. Psalm 72, 12 through 14, he'll care for the poor and the needy. 
Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he will preach liberty to the captives. Isaiah 40, uh, verses 10 through 11, he will be a shepherd who tends his sheep. Jeremiah 31, uh, he'll make a new everlasting covenant. Amos 9, 11 through 12, the house of David will be restored. See, he's the king to bring in an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. All oppression, sin, sickness, pain, and suffering will be eliminated in his kingdom. So can you imagine what the question of the Jews was at this time? When is this going to happen already? <laughs> right? That's the whole thing, the anticipation. There was a mood of anticipation at the time Jesus came because of all these prophecies about this wonderful Messiah that was going to come and do all these things. So you ask, what is the purpose of Matthew, Matthew is going to answer that anticipation by writing this letter and saying, I'm going to prove to you that this Jesus Christ is the one that all of these are about. Now that's Matthew's purpose. Matthew's gospel is called the gospel of fulfillment. The gospel of fulfillment. Turn back to Matthew. The gospel of fulfillment. These are some good highlighter verses I'm going to show you. The gospel of fulfillment. Some scholars believe that's like if you wanted to call it just one thing, that would be it. It's, the, it's how the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 says this. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See that? Fulfilled. Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. And, you know, I highlight every time this word fulfilled shows up because it kind of gives me an idea of what the theme of the book is. You could do that if you want. Verse 15, and there was until the death of Herod, and was there until the death of Herod, that it what? might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Exactly. Look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 2. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Right? Look at verse 23. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth that what? It might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. You guys are catching on with this stuff. This is awesome. <laughs> All right. Now turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet. Notice it doesn't say fulfilled there, but it means the same thing, right? Spoken of by the prophet. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. What does it say? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah. See that? Chapter 8. Go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 17 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Right? Guys like prophecy. Here it is. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Turn to uh, chapter 11. Look at verse 10. There again, doesn't use the word fulfilled, but it says, For this is he of whom it is written. Then gives an Old Testament um, prophecy verse regarding Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 17 says that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. See that? Chapter 13, verse 35. Chapter 13, verse 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he didn't speak to, him, speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. See? Um, chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. He says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. There again, the same point, fulfillment, right? Now, go to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. This is how you digest the big book of the Bible, by the way, is you start by doing a survey through the whole thing, and then your mind starts making these anchors. And then when you go back through it, it's kind of like a skeleton. You get a skeleton going, and then you go back and you put meat on the skeleton. You know what I mean? This is how you digest a huge piece of work uh, like this. Um, Matthew 21, uh, verse 42 
I think I might have skipped one, but you get the idea. uh, 42, just read that. Have you never read in the scriptures, 21 verse 42? Then Matthew chapter 27 verse 9. Uh, 27 verse 9, sorry. What does it say? Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, so Matthew is the gospel of fulfillment, right? Um, what I would recommend for you to do is, you know, read those verses, go read them in their context in the Old Testament and what's going on in the scene, and then try to wrap your mind around, how does Matthew take this from the Old Testament and apply this to Jesus? That's a good workout for your brain uh, right there. So what did he do? What was Matthew's purpose? Well, one commentator says he sought to connect the memories of his readers with their hopes to show that the Lord of the Christian was the Messiah of the Jew, the King of the Promised Kingdom. Now, it's not strictly for Jews. Many of the places in here apply, you know, apply to um, the whole world. Uh, you know, the Great Commission, for example, go into all the world and baptize those in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to show you some more here. Uh, let's, do, let's do more, okay? The structure of the book. First of all, look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You always do this when surveying a Bible book too. Read the first verse and then the last verse. So the first verse says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You're like, okay, I remember what we were just talking about here. This is starting to connect. Now read the last verse of the book. Starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does your mind start to think about that? The beginning, Matthew introduces them based on he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And at the end, Jesus is sending people out and going, make disciples and I'm with you always, right? And your mind starts to formulate these conclusions when you do this sort of stuff, when you're looking at a Bible book. Okay, now some people, when it comes to dividing this book, divide it by Jesus' sermons or discourses. And here's how they do that. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 28. Some people divide Matthew's gospel by looking at the um, you know, they, they split it up by Jesus' different discourses, his different sermons. So you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, uh, and it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings. See that? So they, they put a division right there. They say that's how you should divide the book of Matthew. There's one. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. See, he was finished with another discourse there. Notice in your Bible all the red letters before that, right? Jesus had just given a long sermon. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 53. 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had what? Finished these parables. What I'm proving is there are different ways to divide the gospel of Matthew. I'm not going to take you with all of those there. Some people divide it by his sermons, like that. Other people, um, if you have your chart handy, divide it by geography. If you'll notice here in this line, the second line from the bottom, um, other scholars divide it by geography, where it says, uh, what is the first one? Various places, then what does it say? Galilee, surrounding areas, then Perea, then Jerusalem. So some commentators divide it, you know, some scholars divide it by geography. Um, The way that I've chosen to go with is um, into three parts, presentation, proclamation, and passion. You can also see that on our chart here too. It's this line, presentation, proclamation, and passion. What do we mean by presentation? Well, Matthew starts out and in that section, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, and he presents... Uh, Jesus, and this is the first 30 years of Jesus' life, right? 
within the first 30 years of Jesus' life there, you see his genealogy, his birth and infancy. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And that's the end of the presentation series or, uh, section. And by the way, that's the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Uh, then he gets into the proclamation, and that whole long section is Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God, how to be saved, and how to live as a Christian, right? And then the passion, that's why, you know, what was it? What's that guy's name? Braveheart? Mel Gibson. Sorry, sorry. Uh, that's why Mel Gibson called the movie The Passion of the Christ, and it just has to do with this culmination of Jesus' life. Like his passion was to go to the cross. That's what, when it says passion here, it's not that Jesus was like passionate about like art or something. You know what I mean? This is referring to the uh, part of his life where his mind is set on the cross. He goes to Jerusalem. He's rejected. He's spat on. He's beaten. He's crucified. He's resurrected. That's that section. Now, some major subjects of the Gospel of Matthew, that presentation section, then the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, uh, you know, through chapter 7, Jesus gives a message, and uh, here's a little trivia question for you. Is the Sermon on the Mount, does it teach people how to be saved? Anybody know the answer to that? does not teach people how to be saved. The Sermon on the Mount is not how you are saved. The Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus wants people to live in his kingdom, that are saved. This is, what, this is what the kingdom age will be like. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, if you were like, I have to do that to be saved, you, that's about like reading the Ten Commandments and saying, I have to do that to be saved. Like, I can't be, who could do that? But what Jesus is saying is like, this is how the kingdom is going to be. And this is how I want you to live now as my followers. And that's a major section um, of the Gospel of Matthew. Then he also has all these parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. He teaches in parables, and he's describing how it is to live in his kingdom. Uh, then we have the second coming discourses, starting in chapter 24, like through the end of the book. He talks about the end of the age, uh, predominantly through a Jewish lens, how the Jews will be dealt with at the end of the church age and when Christ comes back and the great tribulation and things like that. Some applications, well, we're getting close, right? Point number seven. Application, um, the Gospel of Matthew is an excellent introduction to the core teachings of Christianity. It's an excellent introduction to just the basics of Christianity, how to live and follow Jesus. The logical outline style of the book makes it easy to locate his different teachings and discussions. It's especially useful for understanding how the life of Christ was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And then, you know, to us, you know, how we are to live as Christians. Now, turn to Matthew 9, 9, and we're going to conclude here. I want you to look at the call of Matthew. I get a kick out of this every time. I don't, well, I guess I don't get a kick out of it, but it moves me. I get, a, I get moved by this, you know, often. Because I think of myself, you know, I think of just how bad, you know, of choices I was making before Christ and just how I'd run my life into the ground with selfishness and just drug abuse and just every different thing, you know. And, and um, I like to read about how Matthew was saved here. Let's look at it. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, I want you to remember, this is Matthew that said no to worship. He said, I'm fine, I'll be a tax collector, I'm done with God in that sense. I'm an embarrassment to my family, I'm exiled from the community. Um, people don't want anything to do with me because of the choices I've made in my life. The last place I feel comfortable is in a church, right? And think of this. Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. See, apparently what's going on here is Matthew was called and he followed Jesus. And then Matthew thought, you know what? I'm going to throw a big party at my house because I'm going to follow Jesus. And so he calls up all of his tax collector and prostitute friends and everybody. And he has this massive party. And then he invites Jesus over. And you would think, what in the heck? Jesus would never go to a place like that. Well, on the contrary, my friend. And he's, I guarantee Jesus wasn't engaging in the things they were engaging. And that's a no-brainer, right? But he's not above going there. 
right? And so he goes and he sits with this new convert, this guy that just gave everything and just left it all behind. He knew that his life was empty before. He knew that it was meaningless. He knew that he could have all the money in the world, but it didn't make, if your soul's gone, what difference does it make, right? And he knew that. And he says, I got to have Jesus come over. I got to have a party. I'm done with this. And so verse 19, now it happened. Jesus sat at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, now here are the religious legalists, the religious establishment at the time. And they saw it and they said to his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Hmm. Now, when Jesus heard that, verse 12, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician. There is nobody that's well when it comes to this, but there are those that think that they're well. They think, I don't have any use for this Jesus stuff. I don't, I don't even, they have no awareness of their own need, their own sin, how they're falling short of the glory of God. Jesus says, I, you know, I didn't come for that. You know, I come for humble people uh, that are aware of their need for those who are sick. He's the physician that came to heal the sick. He's not the physician that you go into the lobby and you say, I'm sick, and he says, I'm, not, I'm out of the office. <laughs> he came for you in your state, wherever you're at today, you know that he came for you. He's the good physician, and he wants to perform healing in your life. He wants to heal your soul. He wants to heal your spirit. There's nothing that you've done that's too bad. And there's nothing that you've done ever in your life that disqualifies you from being saved and from being used by God in a mighty way. And that's why I wanted to end here today on the call of Matthew. So that, that warms me, that moves me to know that he comes and sits at a table, you know, in my house. He's with me everywhere. He's not ashamed to associate himself with me or with you. That's a good thing. I love him. Thank you, Lord, for your word here today. And thank you for this wonderful book that we're going to engage in over these next few months. And um, Lord, we love you. And we thank you, Father, that you condescend to us, that you came to us. And how great your love is for us, Lord. Father, I thank you for, uh, personally, just for digging me out of the pit that I'd put myself in and the bad choices that we've made in our lives, Lord, that because of your grace and your mercy and your love for us, you're, you're willing to give us a fresh start and to forgive us of all of our sin. I pray, Father, for anybody here today that doesn't know you in this way, that has been feeling distanced from you and um, maybe can relate with Levi, with Matthew a little bit, that, Father, your spirit would move upon them now and your heart would be exposed to them and that your invite to come to you would be extended, Lord. I know that your arms are open for them here today. I pray, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you that you came for the sick, that you saved sinners, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.